Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why do Irish people see and hear banshees? Why do Arabs have to deal with jinn? Do your family origins have anything to do with the kind of paranormal experiences you have? Well, hello and welcome to the 664th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul. And uh, Ben is on his way because he drove, he's a little bit late because he drove 25 miles to get donuts and coming back. It's kind of a long story. But the donuts are worth it. Everybody else will be able to eat them, but I won't because I'm talking. Anyway, with highly, uh, there, all these highly ethnic questions have to do with our wonderful guest, uh, who has an interesting take on a fascinating paranormal subject. And we welcome your calls today. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, uh, or 401-766-1240 here in Northern Rhode Island. We will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Dr. Wahaba Hadja Al-Mawid, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, has been involved in paranormal research for about 40 years. She holds a master's degree in religious studies and a doctorate in American cultural studies from the University of Kansas. She is the author of a number of academic articles and has taught in virtually every educational setting. Uh, she teaches at Dutchess Community College in the state of New York and in the paranormal realm is a consultant for Bigfoot researchers of the Hudson Valley and a co-host, is a co co-host of the Church of Mavis podcast for UFO Paranormal Radio Network. Wahaba also is an experiencer, a master teacher, initiator, minister, and dervish healer of the Western Sufi order. So, Wahaba, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hi. Hello. Oh, yes. Alrighty, so we're going to start off with something relatively simple. Well, kind of simple. It always seems simple, but it never is. So when it comes to what cultures experience and what paranormal phenomena um, and all that good stuff, uh, can we look at some examples? Like, how about people uh, from Celtic and Western uh, European traditions? What kind of experiences do they have? Well, traditionally, um, they have... Are you talking about what they call the the beings? Um... My experience with talking to people is that a lot of their experiences are actually quite similar uh, to experiences in other cultures, but it's a matter of the types of relationships that they have with these things and, and of course, obviously the names that they call them. So in European cultures, there are lots of different European cultures, and we tend to think there's Europeans, but there's Germanic cultures and uh the, the, the Basque culture and Finnish cultures, the Sami, the Celt, and they all have experiences uh, with land, with beings that are associated with the land. They also have experiences with um, beings that are associated with the dead and the ancestors. So, for example, if you were just talking about the Celts, you know, which the Irish are one example of that, um, and a lot of people are familiar with some of these um, with these traditions. They will talk about the little people, and the little people are generally understood to be beings that are connected to the earth in one way or another. And um, the ancestors and ghosts are actually a, a separate category, although in the story sometimes they might overlap a little bit. The Germans have a whole different tradition, the Germanic people, have a whole different tradition of, of these beings. And they, they're, uh, 
they have uh, there are beings that are connected to the sky, beings that are connected to different animals, beings that are connected to uh, the land. I'm much more familiar, actually, with this particular tradition, and uh, and of course the, the dead and the ancestors, mm-hmm. most of whom actually are kind of scary. In in Northern European tradition, uh, the go- you want to avoid ghosts or ancestors if you can. Those are considered to be kind of scary beings. So those, I mean, I can give you the names of them, of some of them, if you want, but. Um, uh, those are, the, those are the general categories of things, if hmm. you will. And so that the experiences that they would have would be, you know, there are lots of stories about, um, in Celtic traditions, of, of people going into the mound uh, where the, the little people or the Tawafadami are supposed to live and um, being spirited away to, to other realms and occasionally then coming back. And you, you also find similar kinds of stories in um, Northern European tradition, although the mounds are more, more associated with the dead because they could bury the dead in mounds. So you would hang out on the mounds, uh, mostly to contact spirits of the dead um, in certain types of rituals, um, not so much to contact other, you know, like land beings. Okay. So that's just you know, the way I've, the way I've read it. Um, as to what people experience now, uh, well, they experience a lot of the same things that everybody else experiences. Um, they, you know, there are ghost experiences, there are UFO experiences. Um, depending on where you are in Europe, uh, there are some people that still claim experiences, like in Iceland, for example, which I isn't on the continent, but, is, you know, uh, the... The main people living there are Europeans uh, from a European culture. Uh, they, a sizable number of the population, claims that they have encountered uh, spirits of the land that they refer to, or we would refer to as elves. Okay. Now, um, did you want to cover this comment, Ben? From uh... Oh, sure. Well, we, we got a comment from uh, uh, Glenn in Dublin, Ireland via our Facebook page, and he uh, wrote to us, according to Irish folklore, family surnames with an O um, in any of them in, in any of them are the ones who are more prone to seeing banshees, such as O'Brien, O'Reilly, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, Eno. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. yeah. Yes, and uh, they normally are a sign uh, that there will be a death in the family for those who witnessed it. Well, any comment on that on the specific. certain families? Well, um, I, I don't know that. I didn't know that about the surname. Um, I, I I have a good friend whose last name is Sweeney, and that is supposed to be another name that is apparently associated with uh, the spirit and with the elves in particular. Um, that's just what she has told me. Uh, so I, I'm sure that it might well be that there might be certain family traditions that are associated with um, certain types of experiences. I know my, my grandfather's name on my mother's side, not a Celtic name, but um, his surname is associated with an ethnic group, a very specific ethnic group that still has about like 60,000 members in Saxony, Germany, and they are associated with certain types. They were traditionally known as like, you know, magicians and sort of like the black wizards and things at one time in their history. So that wouldn't surprise me. 
Uh, the banshee is is traditionally associated with uh, kind of a wailing, uh, you know, a, a signaling of the dead. But there's also deeper traditions about the banshee because the banshee is also connected. Uh, it's um, it doesn't just wail for the dead. It's also in in the older stories. Uh, was kind of a. It was it was a, it was a spirit that could haunt you, and and it's actually quite similar to another a, 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 a being that's reported from a, a completely different culture in the Middle East that is traditionally called a ghoul. Technically, hmm. we get the term ghoul, and uh, these beings were associated with wailing and. And signaling the dead, but they would also hang out where the dead where the dead hung out to sort of warn you where where, where dead spirits were accumulating, if you will, like a haunted place. So okay. I've seen some traditions about the banshee being very similar to that. Hmm. Well, let's move to North America, Wahaba, okay. now and, and um, talk about um, two. Co- I, 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 you really can't imagine that uh, two cultures would would have developed more separately, perhaps than. Native Americans and let's say the, the Celtic tradition. Although one never knows. I mean, there may have been influences. So, um, what um, equivalence? Or would there be any equivalence to what you've just described in the Native American tradition? And also getting well, into you, cryptids. The banshee. Well, that sort of thing, or uh, cryptids, Bigfoot, that kind of thing. Because uh, we right. we uh, we talked about that previously. Right. Exactly. Well, I can only. I I mean, Native tradition. North America is very diverse, um, and so I can only really speak to those that I know a little bit about, and those are principally the ones that I've become familiar with in the Northeast United States, because I, I know natives who've taught me specific things, and there are some, there are some traditions that are similar. Um, I, I don't personally know of a a being that is exactly like the banshee, although there there are beings that are they do make they do make a cry like that, and not so much among the Algonquin people in New York. That's where I'm from, or that's where I'm living right now. But there is a being that um, the, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois talk about uh, that is. That makes these kind, those same kinds of cries, and it's actually um, not a being that you want to hang out with too much. Um, it's called a, a flying head, and it's it's considered sort of a demonic being, and, and you really don't want to hear it because if you hear it, that that might mean that you die too, mm-hmm. not just that someone else might. Um, and and it also often means that you're treading into territory or land that it belo- that belongs to it and not to you. Um, so my experience and my research has indicated that that the natives did have a a, a wide range of uh, different beings that they had experiences with here. Uh, some of which have analogies or similar things that you find in, say, Northern Europe or in other places, and some which are unique. I mean, and some of it has to do really with the types of relationships that human beings have with the natural world. 
with animals and plants and the other beings, the unseen beings of the natural world, um, and you know, and, and how they read those. They, they certainly did have ideas about the dead and that the dead might wonder. And in fact, one of the things that all my native teachers have told me repeatedly is that you do not go out at night after dark. You mm-hmm. just don't go out at night after dark, period. And um, and the main reason for that is that the nighttime is when those beings, that's when they wander around. Okay. So, Obviously, that's not dissimilar to the same kinds of warnings that you you, you would get from, you know, Northern European um, people who talk about how you shouldn't walk in the forest at night, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. Now, what I, we're interested, too, in uh, other areas of the paranormal as, as, as people may experience it from place to place or culture to culture. And uh, when we um, we we actually had a lovely um, uh, conversation with you, Ben and I, when we were speaking in, in right. your, your vicinity uh, just last week, and uh, we were talking about the relationship between Bigfoot and, say, the, the Native Americans. Okay, because right. this uh-huh. gets beyond a lot right. of the crypto th- things that you might find in Europe. I don't know. So, uh, could you talk a bit about that and the uh, the Native relationship? And you mentioned a certain ceremony. Uh, regarding oh, yes. the keepers yes. of the game and that sort of thing? Yes. Um, around in the, the Hudson Valley area, um, which is um, where I've le- learned this material, the Algonquin yeah, Could you speak a little closer to the phone, please, too? Uh, sure. I've actually, I've got, is this a little bit better? I've actually got my, my earbuds on so that I can hear you. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, is this a little better? Th- that's fine. Okay. Um, the Algonquin people who lived in the Hudson Valley uh, had a ritual, a ceremony that happened every year. It was in the fall, and it was called the Great House Ceremony, and or the Tinkon is how what they called referred to it. And what the ceremony was was it was a twelve day long ceremony that occurred usually after the harvest. So it would have been roughly in our October, I suppose. And um, it brought all of the different clans and people together, and they would build these, this big, large house, Simplicon, this large dwelling, and they would decorate it with these masks. I believe there were 16 masks all together, and they were painted half, half red and half black. And they would uh, they would spend the twelve days recounting, you know, clan by clan, essentially recounting all of the visions um, and dreams that everyone had had for the previous year, and also talking about various problems that the community may have had, and you know, uh, basically working out difficulties, and also singing during singing songs and giving thanks for harvest and all that good stuff. But the, the culmination of this rich festival was um, the, 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 bringing, the, the bringing out calling and reestablishing of a relationship with the guardian of the forest, um, Nisinkwe, who the way he's described, the way Nisinkwe is described, is virtually identical to Bigfoot. You know, I, I mean, his his size varied in terms of how big he was, 
you know, some for the Wappinger people, he was maybe about four, four foot tall, but for others, he, he could be quite tall. And he was understood as the guardian of the forest and the guardian of the game. And, of course, the reason why you want to have a relationship with him and to reestablish this with him is because that's, the game is what you're going to be depending on for the winter. And um, the mask, the red and black mask, represented his face. The, the, the term masinque means um, um, living solid face. What the term actually means, and there's a story that's connected to the Sequoia, which your listeners might be really interested in hearing. Um, according to the story, the beginning of the ceremony started as a result of the following: there were these three young boys um, who were being neglected by their by their people. Basically, the the, the, the Algonquin people went through a period where they were completely disregarding their relationship to, to, the, to nature and to themselves and to each other. And they were neglecting their families so badly that they just didn't feed these three little boys. And so these three little boys wandered off into the woods and they met Masingwe and told Masingwe what was going on. And so Masingwe said, this is not good. So he, so he took one of the little boys, he left two little boys there. He took one of the little boys, and as the story put it, to his dwelling in the sky, and he taught the little boy um, the, the basics of the ritual of the, the great house ceremony, and then brought them back, brought the little boy back down, and, and they taught the two other two little boys, and, and, and he said to them, you take this ritual back to your people, and then they'll get their lives right again. The, the little boys went back, but nobody listened to them because, you know, they're little boys and who cares, you know. So uh, eventually the three little boys got very discouraged, went back to the woods, found the Singway again, and told him, you know, nobody's listening to us because we're just these three little guys. And so the Singway said, bring me to your people and I will teach them the ceremony. And so that's where the Great House Ceremony came from. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. Well... The, before we leave the uh, Native American uh, realm here to go to the Middle East, uh, we wanted to uh, bring up something that also came up in our conversation uh, previously, which mm-hmm. was the uh, the, the, the Pukwudgeej, or, or as they're oh, known around yeah. around here, uh, the, the Pukwudgees from, in our case, the uh, Bridgewater Triangle of Massachusetts, uh, so-called. So can you tell right. us about those? Um, according to... My teachers here, the, the term Pukwudgee comes originally from a monkey word, Pukwudgeej, or maybe it's a Wapager word, Pukwudgeej. And the Pukwudgeej are understood to be little people who accompany Mistingwe wherever he goes. And they, um, if he's the keeper of the game, what they basically do is just help him with that. And they're also understood as another type of guardian. They actually live in the trees a lot. Um, the, the sources that, that I've consulted with have told me that the tree knocks that people hear sometimes and associate with Bigfoot are actually not Bigfoot, but are the Pukwudgeej, and that's a way by which they signal to each other. That's very and interesting that you put it that way, because the um, the Pukwudgees in the, the Bridgewater Triangle at least have a rather poor reputation when it comes to relationships with humans. And uh, I've actually talked with people who 
said that they have uh, attempted to lure them into the swampy areas and sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. what, that's so, what it yeah. Is. yeah, there's well there's it, it's I mean according to the na- native traditions, um, the little people there's lots of different types of little people for one thing. Um, some are more oriented towards people and some are not. The important thing to understand though about Pukwudge and the Singwe is that they aren't here for us. They have their own existence. And this is why it was important for Natives to establish and maintain a relationship with them because we needed, you know, humans needed to exist in harmony with them. And if, according to what I've been told, if humans don't do that, well, you know, it's like there might be some puck wedges that decide, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to mess with these people, you know. And there's, in their there are actually some traditions of some groups of little people. In fact, there's this one. They're not called Pukwudgej, but they are little people. There is a group of Pukwudgej that are associated um, with St. Lawrence Island, um, up further north. And I can't remember. They're called the Sliders or something. Uh, but they are very negative towards humans, and they don't like humans at all. In fact, if humans come into their realm, they will, they will actually kill you. They will like abduct you and 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 fasten you to the earth so that you can't move <laughs> and mm-hmm. you'll stop there. So it's you know uh, the the important thing about all these stories, I think, you know, whether you're talking about you know European stories or Middle Eastern stories or Native stories, is that we are talking about categories of beings of beings that coexist with us in a realm that for us is invisible. It's not invisible to them, but it is for us. And they have an independent existence. So some of us, you know, some of them may want to hang with us or not, but they have their own agenda. You know, they have the things that they do when the human beings get in their way or they make them mad or they go into their realms impolitely. Well, you know, it's, just, it's, like, it's like walking into somebody's house without knocking. Hmm. You know? Yeah, <clears throat> Exactly. We, uh, it's, it's, you've got us thinking here about a lot of things we've run into that might be equivalent to some of the things you have mentioned in, in these cultures. And uh, I was always taught that in uh, folklore studies that uh, there's always a grain of truth behind every legend, no matter how bizarre it may be or how much baggage it's taken on over the uh, centuries, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find the same thing to be true, that um, these may be interpretations of paranormal experiences that lots of people have um, sort of cast in a unique uh, way or uh, with, with the sort of unique baggage from the, the particular culture, you know, whether it be uh, Masingwe or, or whatever, or the, the little people, this sort of thing? Well, I, I, I have found that there's probably, a, a, there's probably some truth that is being expressed in any story that maintains itself over time. You know, that truth may reflect an experience or it may reflect, you know, it may reflect a metaphor about life, you know, or it may reflect the values of a particular culture towards something. Um, But I, I certainly think that there are certain types of experiences that are that are sh- enshrined, if you will, in these stories. And 
I'm not the only person, obviously, who's thought that. I mean, John Keel thought that. Jacques Vallée thought that. You know, Jacques Vallée was one of the first people to sort of point to a continuum between um, paranormal experiences of various types and folkloric accounts. So mm. I don't think I'm saying anything unique in that sure. regard. Okay. All right. But just before before we take our break, um, it, it rang some bells because people somehow the, the involvement of trees is interesting. Because um, thinking of the Pennsylvania case, and I think we we talked about that when we spoke in mm-hmm. in uh, your area. The um, presence of of certain creatures in trees is uh, mm-hmm. a common experience by a number of people who live in this area. They associate them with Bigfoot or Bigfoot-like creatures, but there was actually someone who said who heard a thump behind him, and he turned around in the woods, and there there was this uh, sort of ape-like creature behind him that wasn't exactly like big. You know, all this sort of thing. Uh, it right. rings a bell from what you uh, what you sort of have have said. So um, I think we'll take our um, break right now, and we'll be right back with our, our great guest uh, Wahaba here, and she's going to talk f- further about. Uh, the paranormal and uh, how it's experienced in various cultures and uh, the unique the uniqueness of some of the of the stories so you're listening to behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley we'll be right back this is Bob Vila and my daily home improvement tip will help you keep those little problems around the house from becoming big ones the Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day can be heard every day on ON 1240 WON Woonsocket Radio at 745 in the morning. The Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day is brought to you by Cumberland Kitchen and Bath Design Center in the McDonald's Plaza, Menden Road in Cumberland. Visit them online at cumberlandkitchen.com. And we are back with our wonderful guest, Dr. Wahaba Hadja Almuid. We're, we're discussing various forms of paranormal experience uh, from culture to culture, uh, how different they may be, how similar they may be. So let's uh, let's move to the Middle East. Um, can you tell us about some of the things that are um, occurring there when it comes to paranormal experiences? Um, well, probably uh, some of the more common traditional experiences revolve around a category of being uh, that is collectively referred to as Jinn. Mm. And um, the word jinn comes from uh, uh, an, uh, an Afro Asiatic root, which means to hide or those that which is hidden, essentially. So it's a very broad category. Um, I know that there are lots of, uh, there, there are, have been speculations recently as to whether jinn are connected to you know, a lot of the paranormal phenomena that people are experiencing now, you know, like aliens and men in black and things like that. Uh, if you look at the, the traditional stories of jinn, uh, there, are, there are different types of different types, uh, I don't know exactly, but different families, if you will. In fact, that's sort of how they're described, different nations, different tribes. And some hang out in your house. Some hang out with people and actually are perfectly fine with people and do the do the bidding of, of good spirits for people. Others are bad. Um, some are really evil. Uh, some they can take almost any kind of form or shape. In fact, if you look at the sort of wide corpus of gin appearances, they can look like anything 
that has been described in paranormal mm-hmm. phenomena, including, you know, Bigfoot creatures, um, reptilian creatures, dog creatures, um, lion creatures, virtually anything. And, and I think it's just because the, the term jinn is such a general term. It's become associated more recently with really negative stuff. But a lot of jinn aren't necessarily negative at all. In fact, a lot of them are traditionally been very neutral towards human beings. They're just a category of being that people have reported seeing them. Uh, they tend, at least according to the stories, to, to hang out in places where people used to live, you know, like in abandoned towns or abandoned buildings. And, and when they do that, they sort of overlap a little bit with ghosts. It's really hard for humans to tell the difference between gin and ghosts because, you know, they're equally invisible to us. Um, and the gin, according to the tradition, in some instances could be caught and put in vessels. You know, that's where we get the whole thing about the, you know, the, the Aladdin's lamp thing. Although the word genie actually doesn't come from the term gin, which really? a lot of people don't know that. But mm. it, the, the word genie comes from a, a French word which comes from Latin, which means genius, like the genius of a place, or the spirit of a place that mm-hmm. actually has a different origin. Okay. Now, before we get into some specifics uh, about various experiences with the groups, uh, we, we should probably deal with the uh, African African-American, maybe Caribbean traditions, if those oh, are. uh-huh. So, so yeah. go right ahead. Well, what I spoke to you specifically about had to do with African-American alien experiences, which are mm. a little bit different uh, than um, European or, you know, the standard, the standard abduction narrative. And what, and... This has to do with um, traditions that were brought over from Africa uh, that have to do with um, spiritual beings that are either called Loa or Orisha, and I'm just talking here about those groups that were brought specifically to the Caribbean or to um, the Americas, because there are lots of other African groups. But they run the same gamut. Um, you have you have beings, Loa and Orisha, you have beings that are are positive and work with human beings and and especially are, are good for healing. Um, you also have ghosts. Um, and you also have beings that could be considered quite negative. Um, you mentioned some rituals that you saw uh, that uh, that struck you as being a little bit more on the negative end. And we're in Haiti and in 1984, in yeah. Ha- in Haiti. And my experiences of, of, of Vodouin, which is what you're talking about, is that there are several different types of Vodouin. And some some types um, work, with the, work with, I guess you would say, a, a positive relationship with the Loa. And what I mean by positive is that um, this relationship with these beings is specifically geared towards healing and towards unifying people, um, unifying communities, and bringing people together. Whereas a more the more negative aspects of that would be individuals or relationships with these beings that are trying to um, ma- manipulate outcomes or be coercive 
or develop sort of, uh, I guess you would say, power over other people, you know, glamours over other people. And you find this same sort of thing in all traditions, by the way. I mean, in Native traditions, for example, there are very clear, clear distinctions made between individuals who are shamans who, for, for, for the good of the people and for individuals who traffic in these spirits that are witches, that are just doing this to gain power over others, you know, in a, in a more predatory kind of way. I mean, all, all, all cultures make those distinctions. So it's like there, if you want to put it in terms of these different beings, there are some beings that will help you do one thing and some beings that will help you do the other thing, just because in those realms, those spirits are just like us, or those beings are just like us. They can make positive choices or negative choices. You know? Yeah, okay. So if you're a negative person who wants power, you're probably going to hang out, you know, with the bad guy. You know, in much huh. the same way, if you're a, 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 that kind of a person here, you're going to hang out, you know, with like organized crime or something. Sure. Okay. You know? Before we get into anything else, I want to get into more alien experiences as they may relate to these groups. But um, before we burn up the whole hour, Wahaba, would you tell us about where people can find out more about you, uh, your writings, website, whatever you'd like to, to tell people uh, uh, to share with us? Please please do so. Uh, the best way to contact me is through my website, and that's a job star. That's A-D-A-B, or I say apple dog, apple banana star. Dot com and there's a there's a contact form on it that you can contact me and I do collect I do collect accounts from people if you get onto that website you'll see all of the different things that I do it's still sort of in process um, I'm a consultant for the Bigfoot Research Group here in Hudson Valley and I while I don't go on a lot of field research with them like I don't go swatching for example I do act as a consultant. Um, for them, because they also, when they're when they're receiving reports from people getting who've seen Bigfoot, they a lot of times these people have also seen UFOs or have had other kinds of experiences, you know, hauntings or that kind of thing. And that's more what I do work in uh, people who've had uh, more of the you know contact UFO contact uh, experiences or ghost experiences, poltergeist experiences, that sort of thing. So um, that's not something that. Gail really likes to deal with that much, <laughs> so she yeah. asked me to talk about people about that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, well, when, when we met you, uh, we uh, kind of spoke the same language, I think, you know, sort of um, similar, similar approaches in some ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, may I suggest that we uh, move on to uh, the UFO realm? Ben, did you have sure, any absolutely. any particular uh, questions at this point? Uh, no, I'm still trying to formulate them in my mind. Yes, yes, a lot to think about. Uh, so, Wahaba, what about um, the uh, the notion of aliens? And, and we uh, sort of have, have discussed this previously as, as a very broad term for life that just is not human. doesn't necessarily mean someone from another planet could be you know, multi-dimensional, you know, whatever, or I should say multiversal, whatever, uh, or it could simply be a very different kind of creature uh, with whom we share our world, as, as you uh, may have suggested in previous uh, part of the discussion, uh, but uh, whom we just don't see, that, that sort of thing. So uh, when it comes to the notion of, of aliens who may be uh, from elsewhere or elsewhere, um, how, how would that work into 
the interpretation of, of, of these experiences we've been discussing, you know, uh, UFOs, uh, strange lights in the sky, this sort of thing. Uh, right. How does that how does that enter uh, into this discussion? Well, um, all the cultures that I've touched on do have traditions of being that identify themselves as star beings or are associated with flying light, a floating light. Um, and I think at this point we have to make a kind of distinction between uh, what I would call older stories and newer stories. And what I mean by that is that now there exists, of course, in the wider public accounts of, of alien encounter that are that are very that are very much mediated sort of in the modern idea of beings coming from other planets. And that has actually impacted um, a lot of cultures, um, even even that are still pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, um, in the Middle East, uh, there are you know the ide- ideas about the jinn, traditional ideas about the jinn, exist at the same time, and in, in, along with stories of, of of alien craft and UFOs and and all of that. Um, and in uh, Native tradition here in, in North America, and I'm just, just going to speak about North America, there are long-standing traditions of, of beings that came from the stars or from other realms that are not associated with, you know, the Earth beings that have, that have had various types of contact with, you know, Natives. But then on top of that, a lot of the natives are now describing new types of contact with other alien beings that they identify as coming from the stars or from other places that are much different than in the sense of being more negative and more controlling than the the older stories were. And the person who's really tracking this is um, Artie Fitzkiller-Clark whose work I would really refer people to. She's written three books in which she details this. And the first batch of books are books that are are stories uh, that are more traditional stories of star people. And then the next two, the next two books um, detail some of these more recent stories. And so it's really interesting um, because the newer types of alien encounters seem very colonial if you want to put it that way. In other hmm. words, the beings that a lot of people are experiencing now are, can often be very negative, at least compared to older traditional accounts of beings that are understood to be stars. So I, I find that to be fascinating. And yes. I, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know whether that's a reflection of the experience itself changing or our rela- or human relationship to the experience changing. Maybe you know, all of the above. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, no, perhaps all of the above. Yeah, perhaps all of the above. Okay, uh, yeah. Ben, you look like you want to say something. Well, I mean, I, uh, excuse me. One of one of the topics that we brought up when we when we met you, Wahaba, was a very in- interesting perspective on the whole abduction scenario, mm. which was how it was interpreted by different cultures. So, would you like oh, to speak okay. about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, 
And that's actually what I did my dissertation on, very specifically, uh, because when I was when I was doing my research on alien abduction and contact, and this was back in the late 80s and early 90s, so as I said to you then, the situation may have changed now a little bit. But one of the things that I discovered uh, and was actually granted the gift of discovering, in other words, I had to sort of midwife into this community, was um, uncovering the fact that there is a, a, a very sort of involved narrative of alien abduction in the African-American or certain African-American communities that is quite distinctive from that, uh, quite different in any ways, from that of the, you might say, mass, dare I say white, <laughs> uh, uh, alien abduction narrative. And the differences are, there are a number of differences. Um, the first main difference is just how, how the purpose of the abduction. So that, because I don't know that I mentioned this to you, in, in, in most classic um, uh, um, standard narratives of the alien abduction, humans are being abducted so that the genetic material can be taken and um, in order to help beings, you know, these beings survive. In other, or however else you put it, the, the experiences are often experienced as negative, and this is at least in the, in the written narrative. It isn't necessarily what everybody experiences, but it's the common narrative that you find in movies and, and stuff like that. Um, then the African-American tradition, if you can call it that, is quite a bit different from that. Um, in that the experiences are not as negative necessarily. They don't always they they don't always involve, in fact, rarely involve um, medical examination. Um, in fact, Barney Hill's account was quite unique in that regard. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah, quite unique in that regard, and. Um, that 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 his that that doesn't reflect the, what most native what most natives what most um, African Americans have told me who've and who've had these experiences, um, and there's also less of what I call the uh, the memory gap. You know, in 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 the classic abduction narrative, you have this lack of memory that then this ha that has to be retrieved via hypnosis. And not only did I find that in actual practice that's not nearly as true generally as is claimed, that in African-American accounts, with the exception of Barney, and he's like the only, he's a major exception here, the exception of Barney, there's almost no gap at all, no memory gap at all. In fact, just for the, if I could just interrupt for a moment, we're referring to the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case of 1961 uh, in New Hampshire, the first uh, well-publicized um, abduction experience in really in American history, anyway, in the, as far as the media was concerned. And uh, Barney was African American, and uh, Betty was uh, European American, <laughs> white, whatever. Yeah, well, yeah. Basic, basic, basic white Yankee woman. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's how she described herself. So that's the background of what we're talking about, if anyone doesn't right. know. Okay. Right. And in fact, of, of all of the, the, the um, African Americans that I interviewed for my dissertation, none of them required, had any memory loss at all. I mean, it just, it was like hmm. their experience was on a continuum. You know, they, they, uh, 
they enter into the contact abduction experience and then, you know, entered into it and then came out of it and they, and, and it was a continuum. Now there is another, um, African American abduction experience that I have to mention here that's actually much older. It happened a full, uh, almost a full 10 years before Betty and Bonnie's full experience. The account of a man named Harrison Bailey. And um, his account was first published by Scott Rogo, I believe it was. Oh, so I knew Scott, yeah. Yeah, and um, he he did experience some memory loss. Um, but his ex- but even prior to that, his experience of the of the um, of the alien and of the abduction experience itself overall was quite different. And then when he was hypnotized sometime later, even that memory was a little bit different than the standard narrative. So, and his account is really interesting if, if you have a chance to, to look it up. Um, I, it hasn't been published widely, but I, but uh, it was published in some of Scott Rogo's material. So, mm-hmm. his name is Harrison Bailey and, and, and there are some interesting, I don't know what else to call it, there's some interesting racial information in that account in that he, 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 had, this, he had this encounter with aliens that were very non-typical in appearance. And then the next day, he ran into like two or three white guys from his, and this is in the 50s, two or three white guys from his, his job who started giving him a hard time. And they said something to him like, whoa, we, was that a spaceship we saw you get into or something like that? Completely freaked him out because, you know, like, how would they know what happened to him? Yeah. You know? And, and, and it scared him so much that he just didn't say anything to anybody about it, and the main reason that he didn't say anything was because it was these white guys threatening him with it, which is kind of an interesting sort of twist. Really? All of yeah. That. Because you would think that that would be confirming evidence of something. You'd think so. But, Very strange. You know, but it didn't comfort him at all. No, I shouldn't think so. so. <laughs> huh. Well, one, one thing yeah. that's coming to mind here, Wahaba, is, is that, as I understand it, African DNA is the oldest human DNA on the planet, and um, well, it's the most varied. It's the most varied, yeah. Um, but European DNA—I don't know about Asian, but European DNA—and Europe isn't all that far from Africa, really. It's right across the Mediterranean. Uh, the uh, European DNA seems to be um, less varied, and you know, implying perhaps that it's newer. This sort of thing. Would um, the, the uh, and some of the cultures in Africa? Because when I was working on one of my books, I was studying the uh, Nicobar and Andaman Islanders. Uh, it's not in Africa, but it's in the Indian Ocean, and uh, other cultures um, like like the San and Khoisan Bushmen of Africa. Very, very, very old cultures. Uh, very ancient DNA. Do you think that the um, um, genetic age, the age of the genome, or whatever you want to call it, it, would have an effect on not only the experiences, because there's no way to prove this, experiences that are uh, that are had, or how they are interpreted. 
Um, maybe I'm asking about the age of the culture. Uh, I, I don't know really even what to ask, but I just I think that, well, that the age of the DNA know, is interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that we know enough about that no, to really no. sort of make that assertion. I mean, the thing that we need to remember about DNA is that if you're a human being, <laughs> if you're a human being, then your DNA is basically African, ultimately. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not that we have newer DNA. It's, it's that our DNA has fewer, fewer variations. And what that I means see. is yeah. that, it, and, and, and of course, Amer- uh, Europeans and Asians have approximately, and this is, you know, all Asians, have approximately the same kinds of variations, although if you, as you get more towards, um, you know, the southeastern part of Asia, um, you, you have you have less Neanderthal and more of this other group, the, the, the Nosovans or whatever. And, and apparently there's been yet another unidentified group that is associated with some people in... Um, like the, the New Guinea area, um, that that and that we don't we only have some genetic information about, but we haven't found any, you know, fossils from them. So um, I, I think that really the story about our genetic story is still being written. So I think it's I, I don't I don't know that 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 would really change necessarily our experiences of of I think that it's much more important, um, but the significance that I see and the differences have much more to do with culture and much more to do with, um, you know, the, uh, human identity mm. than, than it has to do with anything genetic. Um, perhaps now, in, I'm sorry, perhaps you know, in the, the back of, I'm sorry to interrupt, but perhaps in the back of my mind was the, uh, the idea that uh, alien um, messing with human genetics as a theme throughout oh, the UFO community, right. and uh, right. with di- with different variations in DNA, there might be different experiences. Uh, if there's any truth to this genetic yeah, manipulation I mean, thing, I mean, I mean, natives in the Americas, at least some different types of natives in the Americas, do talk about how various of their groups were seeded from the stars, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and other groups make those, make those claims, too. So, you know, I mean, on a certain level, that's true of all of us, because the planet is seeded from the stars. I mean, come on, you know, like we all, we all basically come from the cosmos, so that's going to be true of anybody. But, um, you know, I think, I think that, I think that, that we really don't, we, you know, but we're barely figuring out about ourselves physically. And, and we certainly have a lot to learn about the other beings that live with us on this planet. And I think it's a, you know, I, I mean, I'm much more interested in finding out um, about all of these relationships rather than, than worrying about differences. Uh, or, you know, because we're all humans and we're all here and... I mean, us humans who are humans are here. And we're here with, and surrounded by a, what I call a kind of embarrassing, embarrassingly glorious exuberance of life. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Beautifully put. And unseen. And um, while our genetic propensities might have some bearing on who initially comes and knocks on our door and says hello, mm-hmm. the fact is, is that we can say hello to anybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time, uh, Wahaba, but, but uh, Dr. Wahaba Hadia Al-Muid, wonderful conversation, Will the first of many, I hope, uh, on the air, and uh, thank you so much, and give us your website just quickly one more time. Yes, um, adobstar.com. Very good. Okay, thank you so much. We'll be in touch off the air. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, very good. Ben, take it away. Alrighty, so we have received word from our publisher that our forthcoming book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, will be released much sooner than expected. By a uh, very, very big surprise this week. So November instead of January it will be released. The marketing director said it was a surprise to her too. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we are planning a release uh, event and book signing at a uh, Barnes & Noble bookstore in Northern Rhode Island or Southern Massachusetts or around that area, and we'll have that pinned down this week. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, ch- you know check online and listen to us next week as well. Indeed. So our new YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, and all sorts of other stuff on there as well, uh, eventually when we get to that point. And that is up and running, and our second video about the Pennsylvania Triangle will be uploaded by the end of tonight. And uh, you can find that by uh, checking out our Facebook page. We have links on there, and you can also search Behind the Paranormal on YouTube as well, and that will take you right to our our channel, and you can subscribe to that. So you can get all sorts of updates as well. Now, one of the things uh, we're going to do today is uh, film for another installment on the YouTube channel, and we're going to take our new book, uh, something a little different, and it really is, it, it, there are a lot of case studies in there. There are over 50 cases uh, in there in, in many, many different categories of the paranormal, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, give you a taste of, uh, of what the book is, is going to be like, and um, we'll, you know, all sorts of different, uh, different things in there from... Um, animals and the paranormal all the way down through uh, experiences of uh, the saints and things of this kind right down to our own cases and uh, many many different categories will interest uh, certainly something for everyone indeed so anyway uh, meanwhile uh, find out more about uh, the radio show our public appearances and more at behindtheparanormal.com our, our show website uh, where you'll find uh, nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Also check out our book, uh, or I should say our uh, website, newenglandghosts.com. A lot of case studies uh, on, on that uh, site as well, and uh, things people will be interested in uh, in many areas of the paranormal. Uh, you can find my other books, um, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, and Rhode Island, A Genial History. Not too paranormal there, except Rhode Island's a pretty strange place. Um, anyway, that'll be um, on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, etc., etc. So next Sunday, November 6th, it will be Open Lines. And with us, special guest co-host, as always, Shane Searway. And we leave you this afternoon with an intriguing thought from that old sweetheart, Albert Einstein. The only difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has its limits. I'm Paul Eno. <laughs> I'm Ben Eno, <laughs> and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.